2: I love it here. I love New York. Um, it's a. It's, an, it's been a. It's been such a blessing and an honor to to be a part of this organization. And uh, New York, it doesn't feel like home because it is home like New York for for my family and I it it just means so much and it's uh it's really it's really been uh I mean City Field's a great place to play I mean the fans are super passionate and care so much and the whole city of New York has just been uh super welcoming to uh my family and I it's just been it's it's been an honor I mean it's been nothing short of an honor and it's um it's been it's been awesome so that's for me um, the only thing that only thing really I've been focusing on I just want to be the best player I can be every single day uh, for my teammates um, for my teammates uh, this organization and the fans. and that's that's really that's really all been all I've been trying to focus on this year and and that's 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 really it <laughs>
3: It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Sunday, September the 24th, 2023. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and you can show up on podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silvat, Talking Mets No, Noochi, Mike Silvat, Talking Mets Podcast.com. You can get me on Instagram. Talking Mets No G, and I want to welcome in the good folks from the fan-sided podcasting network, as well as RisingApple.com. Welcome to the next to last week of extended garbage time here on the Talking Mets podcast. I come to you right before the Mets take on the Phillies in the finale of their series. Uh, Gloomy, rainy, tropical depression uh, type of weekend in Philadelphia, as the storm has made its way up the coast, so typical of the feelings of being out of a pennant race fighting for one of the last six slots to be in the lottery. I mean, basically that's what the Mets are playing for a lot of people rooting for them to lose for the Mets to get in the lottery. Uh, The perfect backdrop for what you feel when it comes to this Mets team, but there is some stuff to talk about. And as I've said, week in and week out, it's really a blessing when it's covering the Mets because these kind of shows could be tough, but for a team that's fighting for the lottery, the final six spots, there's a lot going on. You heard coming in, Pete Alonso and a Pete Alonso extension. That's the first one of the first big decisions by David Stearns. Buck Showalter and his leadership, that came to light over the last week, especially with comments from Tommy Pham in an article at The Athletic. Season tickets going up. Saw a lot of discontent on Twitter from that. I'll talk about that. And joining me in just a few to give a little state of the mat someone who's around the team does great work for the athletic will salmon will be joining me and will will uh, chat about those things buck tommy Pham's comments pete alonzo contract extension maybe get some feel what he thinks about the kids the starting pitching that's fighting out for the back half of the rotation so on and so forth so but let's start with the big news and you know that's pete alonzo and signing Pete Alonzo. What's funny, when I heard the report from our friend from Sports Illustrated, Pat Ragazzo, that Alonzo's looking for a 10-year deal, I laughed because I said, you know, go back to the preseason, late January, early February, when we were in those post-hot stove, post-Korea nonsense doldrums as we were sitting around waiting for the Super Bowl to be played and then pitchers and catchers to report. And I said back then that Pete Alonso would be looking for a 10-year deal. I predicted that. He'd want, you know, close to $30 million a year, maybe a $300 million deal. Looking at some of the contracts that an Aaron Judge got, the kind of money that was thrown at Correa before his physical came back uh, not so good. And, and, you know, look, we could sit here and we could pick on Alonso, First baseman, average to, you know, maybe slightly above average or slightly below, depending on how you look at it. Defensively, right-handed power bat has shown some regression in certain areas offensively. This year he's striking out more than he has in the last few years. His batting average is down into the 220s. Actually, even in September as he chases 50 home runs here, he's hitting only 207. So, for the majority of the year, Pete has languished in that Dave Kingman territory, Joey Gallo territory where you know, he's a home run or nothing. I mean, it's amazing. He's only got about 18, 19 doubles on the year. Uh, you know, it's been basically a single here and there. You know, the walks when they come And home runs. I mean, it's all about the home runs. Now, make no mistake about it. Even in the the era of juice balls and launch angles and things like that, 50 power home run hitters don't grow on trees. And Pete, I don't care what type of ball you're playing with. Pete's a legitimate 50 home run guy. I mean, he's the... Forget about Kingman. Forget about Strawberry. You want to put right in there. Beltran. He is piazza. Pure power-wise. There is... And everybody else, I mean, I know Strawberry had elite power during that era, but I think Pete's power is the next level. He is uh, the most elite power hitter in team history. And if not for COVID, probably would be uh, passing potentially uh, on the list of most home runs in five years up to number two or three on that list. You know, you always get those lists. You know, Ralph Kiner's on that list, Albert Poulos, Eddie Matthews, I believe. You know, the list of most home runs in the top... In the first five years of their career, Pete's up there. And, you know, COVID probably robbed him of about, I would say, 30 home runs, maybe 25 home runs. He'd be even higher on that list and challenging for the record. But alas, you know, Ryan Howard was on that list. Uh, Alas, that's not going to happen. So now, you know, he's entering his walk year. There's been talk about how the Mets have shopped him around. David Stearns is taking over in about a week. And look, there's no vacation time, there's no easing into the position here for Stearns. We talked about it last week. He has some big issues to deal with, big decisions to deal with right off the bat. I'm not talking about rebuilding the pitching staff, which desperately needs to be rebuilt. I'm not talking about diving into free agency. I'm not diving into, you know, what do they have here with these young kids and potentially some of these prospects that are making some noise in the Eastern League playoffs down in Binghamton. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about who's his manager going to be because Buck has come a little bit under fire this week because of the comments by Tommy Pham and The Athletic. And then number one, what are you going to do with Pete Alonso? Because, you know, when you start to look at everything around you and you want to talk about Pete in a vacuum, the Mets are absolutely 100% doing the right thing. Going at the deadline and seeing what value Pete Alonso has makes a ton of sense. I mean, that doesn't mean they have to trade him. And I know it drives people nuts because now every rumor is reported. Everything is out there. There's no... Uh, You know, conversations that happen at a bar or privately that, you know, may never make it to the media or the fans. And there's, you know, over the years, you know, how many deals have been discussed by elite players that could have changed franchises in the course of history that never came to fruition? They were just ideas at some point being bandied about at the winter meetings or just general conversation because... That's what you do as a GM. You have conversations with other GMs. You look to see what is a fit. You look to see how you could upgrade your roster and how can you maximize the value of your player wherever they are in their, you know, current service time. And 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 it, that that makes it out into the public and that makes it so much harder because obviously now the player has to, you know, talk about it. But when you look at Pete right now and you look at it in a vacuum the Mets are doing the right thing. But when you start to add the emotional component here, and you start to factor in where the Mets are at, and I told you last week, Stearns is coming in this critical, critical time because Stearns is not coming in fresh slate with Cohen as the owner from twenty twenty. He's coming into an owner that has had to jerry rig the front office, has had a GM leave on him because of you know off the field stuff, had a GM get himself fired because of off the field stuff. He's had you know Alderson in and out we all know the history He said two out of three losing seasons and both losing seasons have gone down in such ugly ways you know one year they were in first place most of the year and they collapsed in August this year they were had the, the highest payroll in the history of the sport and they never got out of the gate and that you know those two things sandwich in a 101 season so you've seen with Cohen the best and the worst and now Stearns is coming in where there's a lot of sour taste in fans' mouth about this year. An article just came out that questioned the work ethic of the team. And, you know, season tickets are going up. You know, I looked, I got some info from a season ticket holder. I'll share that later. Season tickets are going up about, since 2019, pre-pandemic, you know, about 30%. Over $100 per seat per game, and you got to buy season tickets there. Um, You know, that's... That's a tough investment when you're looking at 18, 19, 20, $25,000, even if you split it with somebody. That's a big chunk of your disposable income that you've got to put out towards basically, you know, entertainment. You know, that doesn't include parking and all this other stuff and going to the ballpark and taking time away from your family or your work or jamming in this game and not paying attention to something that's going on with the family. I mean, it's a big commitment. And, with the Mets selling off two Hall of Fame pitchers, so far, those deals look really good. The fans understood that. There was some anger at the beginning, but now you're hearing good reports about, you know, even the Robertson uh, trade, the, the the talent they got back, you're hearing some good things about. But the fans want to see a winning team on the field, and they don't want to wait five years. Stearns is not coming into a situation here where he can just say, all right, I got some time to dive into this job here in New York and figure it out. No, off the bat, the expectations are there. And it starts with Pete Alonso because right now, how in the world, if you're Steve Cohen and you're David Stearns coming in, how in the world can you justify to the fan base and not take a hit from a business perspective, meaning lack of sales at the box office? You know, Cohen doesn't want to have in 2024... You got lucky this year. The fans bought into the, the team, the high payroll, the excitement from the offseason. You didn't really see, you know, a ghost town, uh, a, a cemetery type of emptiness at City Field, even towards the end of garbage time here. Yeah, during the week, it's been sparse. But even the weekend crowds haven't been bad from what I've seen on TV. You know, they, they got giveaways, bobbleheads, ghost fork nights, whatever you want to talk about it. You know, fans are going to show up. Now, this next homestand, that's when the rubber meets the road where school's back in session, football season on the weekends, you know, fall weather, you know, this weekend, you know, they were on the road, but this is a horrible weekend to go and sit at the ballpark, you know, this this early, this first taste of fall that you're getting here. Um, you know, you could really be looking at, you trade a Pete Alonso and you effectively, even if you could maybe put together a, an overall competitive team that could compete for a playoff spot next year. this The message off the bat is that we're retreating. And retreats could be for a year. They could be for two years. Like rebuilding programs can take five years. It took Sandy Alderson from the minute he took over to the to, to the time the Mets won the pennant in 2015. It took him five years. And they kind of had to get hot at the right time or else it would have taken even longer in Sandy's tenure. And he was blessed with some real parting gifts by Omar Minaya and, and DeGrom and Harvey you know yeah he made his own deals with wheeler and Syndergaard and you know he had mats he was inherited you know, he was you know he inherited big time pitching and there was still some components with right and at the time reyes and beltron they were still some stars on the team you know yeah the mets have their core offensive players pp one of them but you trade pete alonso maybe you could get a haul and if you do that's one thing but by trading him or you know letting this thing play out into the free agency year, which may happen depending on you know the request and, and how the Mets want to play the negotiations, you are sending the exact opposite message to this fan base that you've now asked year over year, from what I understand, to invest more money in the team. We knew that was coming. And 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 basically forgive this year as just bad stuff happens. We pivoted at the deadline. We brought in all this talent. We're committed to winning next year. How can you say in one breath you're committed to winning? And the next breath you got Scherzer running around telling everybody they're rebuilding. You're saying, no, we're retooling just, you know, it's not a fire sale. But then you trade Pete Alonso. And I know Stearns wasn't around back in July when all this happened, but it wasn't like all of a sudden two weeks ago he became the apple of Cohen's eye and they started talking. You know, August first was the first official time. But there's ways of feeling somebody out for a job when you can't, you know, without committing overt tampering. I'm sure there was some, you know, feeling about, you know, hey, if we're recruiting Stearns, we gotta at least have some kind of organization for him to come into. So this Pete Alonso decision is really going to take on way more than the usual baseball decision. Baseball wise, Guyne is hitting 30 years old. Power is his game. You know, He his bat slows down even a little bit as he gets into his mid-30s. That contract could look really ugly. Look at guys like Albert Pujols, Miguel Cabrera towards the end of his career, Richie Sexton. You know, these power hitters, Justin Upton. These power hitters, they go bad, especially late in their contract, like Pujols when he signed at a similar age at 30 for a decade It's ugly. And then they become these immovable contracts. You can't even put them in a spot. They're DHs at that point. Or they're very expensive backups. And you got yourself a guy that, hey, could still hit a home run and excite you. But that's it. I mean, Poulos made a a grand exit his final season down the stretch last year, finding whatever magic he could find in, in his body left. So, you know, I see no choice but Stearns and Cohen to make this happen to figure out a way to bridge the gap. If it's years that are holding it up, well, you know what? There's got to be a way to bridge the gap and come to some kind of you know, agreement where the AAV and the years make sense for both sides. I'm sure the Mets don't want to sign Pete till he's 40, and, and I got to think there's a way to make that up somewhere, somehow. So this is going to be really interesting. This Pete Alonso situation really is going to send a message. I will tell you, other than signing him to an extension, I know they let Diaz go to the uh, free agency. I know they let Nimmo go to free agency. I get it with DeGrom as well. That was inevitable. DeGrom was going to test the waters. Maybe that's the one that's the closest you can do. But think about 2019 before that season when Brody Van Wagner took over. The Mets needed to make a statement. And Brody says, my statement is, I'm going to sign DeGrom. I'm going to put an end to all this talk about trading him. And, and he signed DeGrom. And I think you got to do the same thing here. You've got to. And I don't know if it'll drag until spring training. They did the same thing with Lindor. They didn't let him get into free agency. They knew that was their guy, and they invested in him. Now, is Alonzo going to take you know comps of, of Olsen and Freddie Freeman and say, well, if they're making this, I need to make this in the same way? Or is he going to say, hey, look, first five years of my career, I'm up there with some of the best home run hitters of all time, like Ralph Kiner. I deserve to be rewarded for that, and my reward is a 10-year deal worth uh, $275 million. Could be that he's looking for that. And will there be somebody to give it to him? There'll be somebody to give it to him. You know, there's always one owner. And then once you get to free agency, who knows whose dollars are thrown out there? Who knows what could happen? Who knows what Pete thinks about this team a year from now? You know, he says he loves New York, but, you know, another 75 win season next year, things change. You know, you want to be able to send the message to the fans that you want to lock your star up. You have your core then, your Nimmo's locked up, your Lindor's locked up, your Alonzo's locked up, McNeil, if you believe he's part of the core, is locked up, and now you've got to build around those four guys and figure out what kind of other stars slash component players can you bring in to build an an offense that is acceptable. You know, Because the the fact of the matter is, whatever you want to believe with Pete Alonzo, when he hits, the Mets win. Look at the numbers on Baseball Reference. The games he, they win, he's elite Hall of Fame level. The games they lose, he's significantly below league average. When Alonzo hits and he puts up a crooked number with one of his home runs on the board, the Mets usually win. And that's been the case for a while. Now, as far as Buck and as far as the comments by Tommy Pham about this is the least harding, hardworking positional group he's ever seen, certainly an indictment on the manager, certainly sheds a light into maybe... Uh, some kind of issue that's been going on with this team. I know that we've talked about some of the hot air coming out of talk radio about a clubhouse problem, you know. And then Fam, he said this odd comment, but then you know he, he spoke highly of Buck in other other interviews that he's had over the last few weeks since he's been traded. You know, he spoke highly of Lindor, and, and even Lindor credited Fam for showing him you know another way of preparation. I think the overlooked part of that comment was you know, the, everybody's assuming when he said it's the least hard, hard-working group he's ever seen that these guys are in the back, you know, smoking a cigarette or playing pool or playing dominoes or on their cell phones. What in reality, I guess the real question I have when it comes to preparation in the New York Mets is, is there preparation about baseball, about taking fielding practice, batting practice, working on the skills that make you better or that you need to hone or you need to keep fresh to win baseball games or is it in front of a computer screen, or front of an iPad, looking at you know pitch, pitch verticality, or spin rates, or you know repertoire percentage of times they're you know throwing this versus that, or looking at your swing 52 different ways on a high definition camera. I mean, nothing's wrong with that kind of work, but is that the kind of work that they're doing more of? Are their noses buried in the iPad? We talked about this before when the Mets struggled, especially a couple of years ago when Zach Scott was in charge. How many times would I tell you there he is on the bench staring at an iPad? I saw that the other night. I think it was Brett Beatty. Uh, I think he had just made it out, and there he is on the bench looking at himself on the iPad. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. You know, you got to look at your swing. You got to see what you're doing. But ultimately, watching the game, watching the pitcher, watching how your teammates uh, approach each at-bat, I mean, that's the nuance that, makes you a better player and wins your baseball games. I mean, am I talking layman here? Am I talking where I'm not sounding like a scout or sounding like a high-level uh, baseball executive? Of course, I'm, I'm very much talking like, you know, the guy in the stands watching the game. But, I mean, the concept is pretty simple, and I think you guys agree with it. Is that the kind of lack of preparation the Mets have, baseball preparation, or is it they're just that they're lax? I think that one thing's for sure. I think it's definitely something that if I'm Billy Upler and David Stearns, as you make your evaluation going forward, which I believe by this point, they've already decided on Buck. I don't I don't think, you know, I mean, obviously, Stearns is not just coming in on October 2nd and that day they're going to talk about these things and, and like rapid fire and make decisions. I mean, there's a pretty good idea of where this thing wants to go when they interviewed him and discussed things with them. They know where they want to go. I believe if Buck is going to be replaced, he better be replaced with someone who's going to be here a long time, like a Davey Johnson, like a Terry Collins, like a Bobby V. Not someone that you give a try and in two years from now, ah, it didn't work, let's try another one, and try another one. The Mets have had a revolving door with this uh, managerial position since Collins was fired. And Collins way overstayed his, his welcome. So he should have been out sooner. So they would have had even potentially more of a revolving door if things were done correctly and it wasn't for the owner's uh, affection for Terry that saved his job more than once. Um, You know, I, I think that's the only way you fire Buck. It is fair to question how this team prepared this year. I think the real takeaway from the article in The Athletic where, you know, Pham made the comments is the Mets never really, and Buck has, and I thought about this, I think it was Joel Sherman that brought this up, the Mets haven't had a normal spring training since Buck took over as manager. First year was the lockout, so they had the truncated two and a half weeks that he had to get them prepared and started. And it worked. They came out like gangbusters after that lockout in 2022. And then this year you had the disjointed one where you have the WBC, you have the new rules changes, you lose your closer in the middle of it, which I think ripped the heart and soul out of this team. It took the invincibility where these guys knew last year, you got a lead going into the late innings. All I had to do is get three to six outs from my middle relief. And I knew I was going to win that game. So you took for granted you were going to win in the ninth inning because he was so dominant. You felt like, you know, there was a way, there was a pathway to victory every night. And as soon as you had a lead in the late innings, even though the middle relief wasn't always great, you knew if you got this to Diaz, there was the weapon. And now where you could, you know, you have more of a progressive mindset where if the best three hitters are coming up in the eighth inning, you're going to put your best pitcher in, meaning Diaz, you know, you could... You could mathematically stack the deck in your favor with that kind of weapon. Losing that guy, as we've talked about, was a tremendous blow. You add in the disjointedness with everybody spread around at the WBC, new rules to get over, and then just guys that just you know like Marte coming back and 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 just not looking right. Uh, the underperformance by guys like component players like Canna, the 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 growing pains of an Alvarez. You know you threw Beatty in there, uh, you know early in the year. Bottom line, when you look at this 2023 match, you could, you know, talk to Scherzer, talk to Fam, talk to anybody around the team. They had bad pitching from the start. They had a thinned out bullpen when Diaz went down. The hitting, which, you know, might have been a little short and needed another bat at some point during the year. Those other issues were so great, the, bat, the hitting never got a chance to just work itself out. It was amplified. And You have yourself where you're at, which is a second-division club. Now, you know, what's funny is they kept that team together. They don't trade Verlander and Scherzer, and they say, ah, let's just go for it. Forget about the prospects. We might be having a different conversation. I mean, the bar is so low in the National League when it comes to the wild card. You know, Now, Scherzer winds up getting hurt. Verlander hasn't been great in Houston. You don't know what happens there. Obviously, the inevitability of Scherzer getting hurt. He's had so many uh, things going on with him. There were so many red flags, almost like an engine light, blasting that you knew something was going on with Scherzer all year with the little aches and pains, with the things that he was nursing. So maybe it was inevitable, but you don't know if you were even, if you know you're talking about wild card, even though it wouldn't be an impressive record. We're not talking about any of their work ethic. We're not talking about this stuff. It just goes back to show you winning cures a lot of those ills. Now, is it the chicken and the egg? Is it the process versus outcome? I'm not sure. I don't think a Buck Shulwater team was too laissez-faire, and the manager was too, a guy who's known for his career to be detail-orientated and maybe too controlling and too overbearing on his players. I can't imagine a guy with that reputation doing a complete 180 and basically you know, doing what Terry Collins used to do, is basically let the veterans run the clubhouse. Maybe there's a certain amount of play he gives his veterans. Maybe he trusts them to prepare in the manner they see fit. But I don't see it as somebody that's presiding over a lazy team or a team that's not interested in putting the work in order to win. That's the exact opposite of who they were in 2022. Maybe they took for granted how good they were. You know, Maybe they just figured because they're X number of years in the league and they're veterans and they have these future Hall of Famers on their team that it would just come together. It's possible. Is all of this an indictment on the manager? Look, it was not a banner year for Buck Waller. It wasn't. You know, he was in a tough spot with the kids, wanting to win now and play the kids, and you know, manage a bullpen that was short. You're never going to, you know, be able to figure out how these optionable relievers like Brigham and so on and so forth can fit in the overall scheme. So it's it was a tough year. It's a tough year for Buck. Pretty damning comments. I think there's some nuance of the comments that we're not privy to. It's easy to take Fam's comment, blast it into a tweet. And start making assumptions about, well, who is it? Who's the one that's not the hard worker? You know, it may not mean that they're not working. It's the type of work that Tommy Pham believes positional players should do. I think that's what it comes down to. And some people are new school who believe in iPads and spreadsheets and data points to help you improve, you know, video. And then there's old school guys that are like, let's just get into the batting cage and put the work in. Let's just you know, take more reps. Uh, is one right and one wrong? I mean, I have my thoughts and opinions. I'm not a professional player, of course. Others have their own thoughts. So, anyway, let's hear what Will Salmon has to say. Big things ahead. David Stearns takes over in just a week or so, and let's face it, he's gonna get to, he's gonna hit the ground running. There'll be a press conference. Tough, tough questions are gonna be asked of him. Who's gonna be the manager? What's going on with Pete Alonso? And oh, by the way, you have a bunch of kids and pitchers that are trying out for positions in 2024. Look at all these question marks. How are you going to fill them? Are they going to be filled internally, externally? What's going on in free agency? There is, let me tell you, October 2nd he takes over, I guess, is the date. That Monday after the season ends, October 1st. Um, Is that when it ends? Is that where you're going to go? The first day when the season ends, David Stearns is going to be asked a ton of questions. And he better have the right answers and the Mets are going to need to hit the ground running because the fans have no patience. They're not paying more money and not paying 30% more for their tickets to see what they saw this year for any length of time, even with an executive that they believe can bring into the promised land, who comes with a little bit of equity, who's the darling of the media. You know, hit the ground running. David Stearns is going to be expected to compete, win, and execute at a high level. No excuses from day one. It's a tough job. We talked about that last week. All right, let's take a quick break. We'll Salmon of the Athletic right after this
0: everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or mccrispie sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish that savory tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time
1: and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
4: think huh? that is a damnation on the manager at all? No, I just, you know,
0: Tommy's titled his opinion. And, uh, you know, what works for one player may not work for another. It's, it's fine. We have, i got a lot of, you know, I see the work these guys put in every day, so... Doesn't really. So
4: you don't agree with it or do you
0: agree? I I don't even comment on it. It's not, we got other things we need to to be uh, on top of getting the team ready to play and finish the year. So, you know, Tommy's had a good year and we wish him well.
3: We're back and joining me, you guys know him from The Athletic, Will Salmon, uh, does great work over there at The Athletic. And Will, welcome to the program. You know, I'll start with this. Um, I know you've been covering baseball for a while. This is actually quite an interesting time to cover the Mets, even though they're a second division club fighting it out for the, you know, the sixth worst record. Uh, There's so much going on. It's not your typical second division club. So welcome to the program. And how are you?
4: doing well Mike thanks for having me yeah I completely agree man like it's uh, it's something different every single day obviously that's nothing uh too different from what Mets fans are accustomed to over the years but uh it really hits you when you're covering this team day in day out just the amount of news or the amount of interesting things that just occur on a daily basis.
3: Will Salmon of The Athletic joining us uh so you're familiar with David Stearns I know you've been out there talking about it you know he's not official but he will be in about a week uh Obviously, it was the, the no-brainer move. It was probably the worst-kept secret in baseball. But he's not Theo Epstein or even Billy Bean in his heyday coming here. There is a bunch of questions. He's coming into a huge challenge. He has a ton of promise. But you know this task, despite the fact he's got the wealthiest owner now in sports, doesn't come without its drawback. So I was curious. Uh, you know, the Stearns era begins shortly. This is quite an undertaking that he's uh, jumped himself into.
4: Yeah, it definitely is. It's definitely a pressure cooker as well, because there was no real number two person or number two option that we know of as far as Steve Cohen's wants and desires for baseball, president of baseball operations. Even going back to, say, like when Billy Epler was hired or GM's before him, there wasn't a whole lot of candidates out there that had that pedigree or that resume that jumped out to you that said, okay, this is the guy for a president of baseball operations position, not just the GM spot. Uh, David Stearns, of course, jumps out as that type of candidate, as that type of person. But yeah, there's, there's some question marks there um, to, you know, right off the bat, just like I mentioned being in that pressure situation of like, okay, I don't really remember uh, if there's any executive ever in baseball that, comes with this sort of cachet or this kind of attraction or interest. Uh, We don't usually talk about executives this way. We don't usually target them in this manner. The guys you mentioned are in a totally different tier, historically speaking, as, of course, Theo Epstein, Billy Bean, those types. But David Stearns has become sort of like a household name in baseball families, at least. And that's saying a lot for somebody who was an architect of a small market team like Milwaukee Brewers. You don't really hear that too often. So I do agree that he's coming into a situation where there may be some question marks as to how much could he sort of uh, relate or institute what he was doing at a high level with the Brewers, with a team with far superior expectations or um just desires going in in terms of like what the fan base expects year in, year out. Whereas with the Brewers, it was coming from a situation where I don't want to say they were happy to make the playoffs, but like they were just happy to make the playoffs when that first started to happen. Now the expectations there have gone up. Um, But at first, you know, it was, Hey, make the playoffs a couple of times and you're in the conversation as one of the best executives in franchise history here. Like you're, it is an undertaking. It's going to take some time, probably as far as continuity goes, and a lot of it will depend on who he surrounds himself with.
3: Will Salmon of The Athletic joining me. And, and he's being shoehorned in a way into an organization. I mean, it's been made clear by Steve Cohen that Billy Epler was, uh, you know, at least assisted in making sure that whomever they hired was going to work well with him. They've started to build some of the infrastructure in the organization. Look, I've said it a lot. Cohen took over in November of 2020. Uh, the season, the offseason was in the middle of a pandemic, of course, but the off season was already underway. They've had to kind of retrofit, you know, with Sandy Alderson and the GMs that came and went and the manager that came and went. So he's coming in with some pieces, not all his own, not even his own manager. Uh, it'd be interesting. I mean, this is a little different and strange. No one's talking about it. It's not your typical management hire the way you want it to go. You want to come in, clear the deck usually, and build it yourself. And that's not exactly what Stearns is coming into 100%.
4: Uh, yeah, sometimes. I think with, with Stearns, too, though, um, it, it's kind of similar to a little bit of what he inherited with the Brewers because he never he didn't hire Craig Council. He inherited him. Um, he also inherited a bunch of minor league managers as well. And, um, sure, he hired some people in his front office, and the front office there grew uh, a ton, so much so that they had to, I think, build another office at American Family Field just for the analytics group there. Um, So it definitely grew, but he also inherited a couple of key people within that front office that were sort of holdovers or that were even, like, guys who were sort of fast-rising or, you know, growing rapidly within the industry. Uh, One name name in particular that I think about is Matt Klein, who um, is a big part of their front office and was part of their brain trust, but that was somebody that was already in the organization. And he, he kind of graduated into, like, a, you know, a, a top five person as far as the hierarchy goes. There, um, same kind of with Matt Arnold as well. Like Matt Arnold, uh, the, who's the GM of the Brewers right now, um, he didn't really have much of a history with David Sterns prior to both of them coming to the Brewers. Um, so I, I think sometimes like a lot can be made of okay, this guy's coming in and he's going to uh, bring in a whole new group of people or a lot of people that he trusts, and, and that's true to some extent and in some key positions that will happen. Um, but also like. He has to learn or he has to demonstrate this ability that he learned with Milwaukee and that's the ability to to work well with other people and to trust other people and to give them a chance and then make your decisions as far as who who you should keep, um, who you should hold on to and where you can kind of make a difference or make a change.
3: Being that you covered him a little bit in Milwaukee, one of the things that's been talked about, especially in this town, across town with the Yankees and their reliance on analytics, you just brought up Stearns and how he built up the analytics department. We know Billy Epler and Steve Cohen have been trying to do that. But there's been a portion of the sport that's starting to question, hey, are these executives, you know, always about the analytics? Does the analytics team always win the tie when you make decisions? And, you know, Stearns on the surface would fit as someone who would – Probably lend itself more to analytics. How balanced is he, Will, from what you've experienced with him? Uh, you've heard some good things from the players that are out there about their interactions. Those have, have been a part of the Brewers organization. Uh, is Stearns a more balanced executive than maybe some are, are thinking on the way in?
4: Yeah, I think a lot of executives are that way. Like, They're a lot more balanced than I think what people will label them as just because there's such a staunch difference between uh, how baseball was maybe 20 years ago versus the way it's right now. But, I mean, we see the successful teams year in, year out. A lot of them have um, huge portions of their front office dedicated to numbers, dedicated to data. And so we'll see a lot of that with the Mets, with uh, David Stearns. And certainly we've already have seen that with the way Steve Cohen has worked and operated and the different positions that he's hired for. That's definitely already occurred here. Um, here will advance a bit, but yeah, to your point about balance. Sure. I, I think there's some aspect of him that looks at the soft skills. A lot of people in baseball refer to say like character, um, how they interact in the clubhouse as uh, leadership intangibles, things you necessarily cannot measure as like soft skills. And like, sometimes like the brewers would make moves and it would look like they're kind of cold and calculated and to a a certain extent they would be, but there's also like that element of, okay, we're bringing this guy in as a trend, uh, as part of a transaction, how will he fit Uh, now that not, not necessarily will make or break the deal. um, And it didn't with the brewers, but it would certainly help uh, their calculus or help their decision-making process a little bit. And they, they still did that even after Stearns, but with Stearns in particular, um, that occurred with the Willie Adamish trade, where they knew firsthand they were bringing in somebody who had leadership qualities, and so that may have helped move the needle in that direction a little bit, too, um, when it came to that. So, yeah, I think it's a combination of just weighing a whole bunch of factors, but just like any other modern front office, they're definitely going to be guided by the numbers to a, to a large extent.
3: And you know, one of the first decisions, assuming that he's been involved in it, falls right into that category. And and everyone's talked about the Josh Hader deal, which in hindsight, you know, even though it may have made sense from an economic standpoint and you know service time, you know, may have ripped the heart and soul of that Brewers team last year out of that clubhouse. And now you have Pete Alonso. And look, in a vacuum, it makes every bit of sense for the Mets to do what it was reported they've done: go out there, seek offers, see what they could get for a player that's entering free agency. Wants potentially a 10-year deal, wants $25 to $30 million a year. Power hitter, uh, to a certain degree, late in his career, could become very one-dimensional. I mean, look at power hitters that went off the cliff. Guys like Richie Sexton, you know, guys like that. So it makes sense, but emotionally, look, a couple of, you know, bad season. Two of the first three seasons of uh, Cohen's ownership, not good. This year, a major disappointment. You've written about that. Season tickets and prices are going up. We knew that was going to happen. And trading Alonzo, although it might make sense inside baseball-wise, uh, that would be a, a, a very hard introduction to the New York scene. Now, maybe Cohen takes the hit, but he's the boss now, Stern, so he'd be the first one. Not not envious of this uh, decision that he has to make right off the bat.
4: Yeah, a lot of these decisions, of course, like anywhere else, would start with like what does ownership want to do and then it falls down to okay like let's make the base the best baseball evaluations from there um and that will probably occur with the mets as well like it has a like it did at the trade deadline for instance um as far as alonzo goes I, i don't know if he's necessarily seeking uh 10 years i know that that's been reported out there but um that's not something that i could uh confirm but we'll see what happens with with like what how many years he he gets um, whether it's from the Mets or another team but he's definitely proven his worth and I think also I just have a hard time looking at a potential trade that involves Pete Alonso, and you're seeing how the team gets better in the present now certainly it may get better in the future but I just don't know how it gets better like in 2024 without Pete Alonso on your roster particularly with the Mets because they don't really have like that huge or obvious solution at first base um, if they were to deal with So Like back in the day, there was uh, I believe with like the Phillies, um, you know, they, they had Ryan Howard on their team, so that that allowed them to make some moves to 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 give him the runway and, and that kind of thing. So um, it's not it, I just don't really see it as something that helps them in in the current situation whatsoever. It would definitely be a nod toward okay, we're we're still trying to build toward 2025, 2026, etc. Um, yeah, it would be hard, um, and the consistency is just incredible. Uh, it's just incredibly difficult to replace too. I know that he's having a a down season um, by some measures, and he had some uh, hard times when it sort of mattered most for the Mets. But I mean, he's still on base to do things that only a select few people in baseball are doing that's approached like 50 home runs and you can almost pencil him or you can pencil him in for at least 40 almost every season. And you're just not getting that from a lot of guys.
3: Absolutely. Will Salmon of The Athletic joining me here. You wrote a great piece uh, with Tim Britton kind of uh, post-mortem on the Mets uh, of 2023. And and look, I mean, everybody and I know that, you know, Scherzer was quoted in the article, Tommy Pham. Uh, I look at it this way. You know, it's pretty simple. When you start to look from day one, the starting pitching was historically bad at the beginning the bullpen was short with diaz out the offense had some underperformance and injuries that those other two things couldn't be there couldn't be uh, a present in order to stay afloat until they figured it out and uh they made a decision at the deadline to you know basically punt for the future you could argue that we're not even having this conversation if they don't make those deals because look at the records of those who are behind the Phillies in the wild card race. You know, it's crazy. Will uh, bad season, but it's but three, four, five weeks ago. If they don't make those deals, who knows? Maybe they're hovering around five hundred, a couple of games over. And maybe we're talking about sneaking into a uh, you know a wild card tournament. It's it's not as clear cut. It is an interesting uh, conversation. But this has been a weird team in a weird season.
4: Yeah, maybe. Um, I think sometimes like. That's just hard to say because um, there was a lot of pressure around this team, and the pressure, once the pressure got removed, um, they started to play a little bit better, and we saw some of their inside goal pieces uh, perform at a higher level or a level that they're more accustomed to. So I'm, I don't know if that pressure remains, if, if the production um, increases uh, the way it has for, for, for certain guys. I'm not sure. Um, I think it's kind of too easy to kind of – make that correlation. And also, like, the guys that they traded, uh, you know, Max Scherter's out now for the rest of the He's been out for a while, and he won't pitch in September. Um, been- and he was sort of uneven with the Rangers anyway, um, from a health perspective, certainly. verlander uh, has been pretty solid, I think, for the Astros. Um, not, the Ace- not-, not the Cy Young Award winner that he was a year ago. Uh, David Robertson has not pitched well for the Marlins. Um, so uh, there, there could have been some regression for some of these guys as well. So I think it's a little bit easy to kind of say, like, okay, well, they would have been in the race if they hadn't. Um, maybe. Uh, maybe. But we don't know for sure. Um, as far as, like, this year goes uh, in, like, that particular article, uh, yeah, I think, like, you outlined it really well with the idea that, like, hey, like their, their pitching just failed them early on. Uh, it's certainly true. And some of their hitters uh, just – regressed or just weren't able to produce at a high level that they're used to, um, early in the season, in the first half of the season, uh, from our perspective, like we kind of knew that as everybody else sort of looking at this team kind of did, but our, our job with that particular story was to mainly just do some clubhouse reporting and do some scene setting as to like what it was like for these guys to experience this, because, Um, the amount of money that was invested. I know people are sick and tired of hearing about it, but it was unprecedented and it's historical. And I think years from now, when people see that figure, there will be a a question of, okay, well, what happens? And it's not like embarrassing on the level of like, say like the Padres or or something like that, because they they did make the smart move, I think, in pivoting um, at the trade deadline and um, they align themselves up for the the future in a better way. Uh, But it's still is a failure and it's still something that people will point to years from now and just wonder to themselves, you know, what in the world happens.
3: Buck Showalter is one of the names that, you know, maybe even before Alonzo that has to be addressed. He does have another year left on his contract. I think he's done a nice job here, obviously, uh, this year. uh, Some questions, bullpen management, you know, look, when you have a short bullpen, easy to look bad with bullpen management. Maybe not playing the kids as much as the fans would like. Uh, And then there was the quote from Tommy Pham, which has been kind of mulled over a lot, you know, regarding the work ethic of the team, and and maybe he, you know, was put a little out of context. Um, Certainly something like that, it's an indictment on the manager. Would you care to talk a little bit about your thoughts on the somewhat of a firestorm on that quote and maybe the future of Buck uh, in this whole disappointment?
4: Yeah, I know from talking with Tommy Pham a lot that he had a lot of respect for Buck Walter and he called him one of those favorite managers to play for, I learned a lot from him as well, respected him. Um, he was one of the veterans who told me at midseason and another large story I wrote that Buck Walter is far from the problem. Um, so I think like a lot of that uh, quote could be attributed just to like, guys, you know, these are major league players, accomplished veterans in some regards Um without guessing as to who he was specifically talking about or speculating on that. Like it comes down a lot of times to like, you got to do your work or, or you don't um, in Tommy Famous view. And it's, I don't know if, well, I know for sure that he didn't mean it as something that was uh, could be attributed to the Buck Showalter or any manager for that matter. Um, I can understand like how people would take that and interpret it that way though. Um, but yeah, I, I think, Showalter has a lot of respect from, like, his veteran players. He treats them really well. Um, He does right by them publicly. You'll never hear him um, say anything negative about one of his guys, and I think people appreciate that, particularly in this market. Um, And, and, yeah, I I think, like, that quote, um, we gave players an opportunity to say, like, no, this is definitely completely wrong. And within that story, like, you'll see that, you know, guys didn't necessarily, like, say, like, he's way out of line or anything like that by saying it. I think people were more, um, within the club, I was looking at it as, okay, like, how can we learn from this? I think it's actually a good thing, um, and it's something that kind of, like, it's a good thing for them to look at that. It's a refreshing look to say to themselves, okay, what can we learn from this? If it's true, uh, what can we look at our processes to see what we can change? And some of that, like I said, I think a lot of it falls on the players, and not necessarily the manager.
3: There is so many questions, as I said, around this team. And and there's some promising, uh, obviously, young players, young pitchers who have performed well the last few weeks. But nobody really seems to, you know, and I don't think anything will change over the next week, to have locked themselves into a position next year. Maybe Alvarez. But if you start, let's look at just the position players real quick. And I'll throw DJ Stewart in there because he's, you know, been great in the second half in extended garbage time. Alvarez, Beatty, Mauricio, Vientos. Mauricio is such a small sample size. Uh, You have to think... If they're going to spend on pitching, which is what they need to spend on, they may not spend the same level on offense. And th- these kids are going to have to be at least on the, from the start a solution early next year. Other, other than Alvarez, does anybody stand out to you that you really like and say, "Hey, you know, I could see this guy being a big part of the 2024 Mets positional group"?
4: Not right now. They haven't really proven themselves in that capacity. You could chart it out and look at their minor league track record and you know, the buzzword of potential and say to yourself, yeah, you know, this, this could kind of make sense. And we, we've seen that before, right? Of course, like with like rookies who struggle and then their next year, they, they get a little bit better and they gain a little bit more of a a hold on a job, that kind of thing. But so far, like we haven't really seen anybody aside from Alvarez, like you said, really grab that spot and run with it, of course, or make their case for 2024 problem with the Mets is that at third base, they really needed somebody to do that, and nobody really did. Uh, Brett Beatty was given the job, didn't run with it. Mark Bientos has had um, kind of not enough of a sample size, I think, from a continuity standpoint or consistency factor to really make a great judgment off of him. Um, But up until very recently, he hadn't really produced. And then Mauricio, the one thing that we could probably say about him is that his future is somewhere in the infield, like they – tried him in left field a little bit in, at AAA. It didn't really take to it, and they, we haven't seen him there at all in the majors, of course. So we can at least say that he's probably part of the infield future and not necessarily like a utility guy or a left fielder type. Um, so, But that doesn't really give us a whole lot of clues. And unfortunately for the Mets, at third base, I think there's Matt Chapman out there in free agency. But aside from him, and even him, his the second half was terrible. Um, so he's definitely an inconsistent player offensively, although he's extremely gifted defensively. I don't know if they're going to want to commit to that kind of contract when they get probably command. Um, so there's not a whole lot there, uh, for free agency. So I, I think a lot of the signs point to like, they, they need to have an answer internally here at third base. Um, unless they can look at the trade market perhaps, um, and see what's out there. Um, but, and they also have that issue in the corner outfield as well and, and not knowing exactly what to anticipate from, from Starling Marte next year. So when you mentioned D.J. Stewart, you know, my mind looks at him as a possible bench piece, uh, particularly from the left side. But they still have to figure out what their starting outfield is going to look like uh, beyond Brandon Nimmo in center field.
3: And then you look at some of the auditions for the back end of the rotation. Butto, McGill, Peterson, Lucchese. McGill and Peterson, who helped the Mets tremendously in 2022, were probably one of the bigger reasons why they slumped into June this year. Not the only reason, but they couldn't make, pick up the slack when uh, Scherzer and, uh, and Verlander were out, unlike last year, when uh, you know they were able to do that for the two big aces. Uh, being that they've all pitched very well down the stretch, has one stood out to you and said, hey, I like him, as a dark horse for the fifth spot, you know, going into the spring. I don't think you want to commit more than maybe a competition from these guys. I don't think you want to go in to next year with these guys in your four or five. You know, you definitely want these guys as depth. But, you know, they've all provided some interesting things to chew on, especially for a team that needs pitching, can go out and buy some, but you can't buy four or five starters. You need something internally.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you could buy maybe a, a couple, um, certainly one or two. Um, as far as the internal guys, I think my guess would be that Peterson probably has the best shot to occupy a rotation spot. Um, you know, McGill's had some inconsistency with his fastball, so perhaps he's, he's more of a bullpen option in the in the long-term future. Um, and and that, that thinking may have changed, too. Like, you know, when we look back at the beginning of the season, like you mentioned, a lot of people like McGill uh, in the organization as somebody who could be a long-term, Guy as a back end rotation piece um, and maybe have Peterson go into a bullpen role. But like now, it's I, I think Peterson has shown a little bit more ability as a starter. Um, you know, Budo has a chance, I think, of figuring some things out like he's demonstrated. Uh, but I see him and, and some other people around the game see him more of like a, a bullpen type, similar to like a Seth Lugo, uh, that kind of guy with the Mets careers, somebody who could make some starts, make some appearances out of the bullpen. and has a sort of a hybrid role. Um, And then I guess like Joey Lucchese, is the only other guy um, as well. who's part of that group. I think he again looks at like next year as like a uh, guy who gets uh, occasionally called up um, can make some spot starts here and there, that kind of thing again. So yeah, I agree with you. I think that they probably need one of those guys to take a spot. um, If they don't want to take on the spending that they did last year, of course, um, and, and maybe Peterson's that guy. Um, but other than that, they're going to have to look at free agency, people like Yamamoto and some others um, who who look like or who could be potentially good fits for this team.
3: Will, is uh, Kodai Seng, in your opinion, the, the biggest surprise, most positive outcome from this year? And can you look at him as a number two or an ace? I mean, he still needs an extra day of rest, I think, to get through the season. Uh, he surpassed my expectations. I thought maybe you'd get three, four starter uh, performance, but he has had periods where he's been among the best in baseball. What are your thoughts on Kodai Singa? Is he uh, the real deal that you could rely on him as a top-of-the-rotation piece for the next three or four years?
4: Yeah, I think if you look back, like uh, some of the stuff I wrote in November, December, um, even into the spring training, I, I've always liked him as an impact starter. The Mets wanted him as such. That's why they targeted him. Targeted him in free agency. They thought that he could be um, and his best outcome, of course, but not only his best outcome, but like there was a, like a large percentile, maybe not large, maybe I'm overstating it a little bit, but there was certainly a sizable percentile, let's go with that, um, that indicated that he could be a, a, a top guy or a guy that you could count on or look at as a playoff starter. And that's what attracted them. They thought they that that stuff kind of played and that it was good enough to be that type of caliber pitcher. And he's demonstrated that it is. He has shown, like, really no signs of, like, it being a mirage. Like, the guy has continued to get better. It's not like he's doing it with, like, smoke and mirrors where he's escaping uh, like he was in, you know, the beginning of the season where he get into these jams and escape them. And you say to yourself, well, okay, that's good, but, like, the walk rate is, like, super high and it's questionable. Well, that's not really the case anymore. Like, he, he's really limited walks, um, really, particularly in the second half. And, yeah, he demonstrated some science to adjust, whether that's with the ball or the mound, uh, opposing hitters, um, travel, all those things he's really adjusted to well. And I I think what's kind of also gone under under the radar is his ability to to refine his pitch mix a little bit and to know and understand, like, what pitches play better at this level and where he could attack and have the most success uh, from the consistency factor when he falls behind in counts or when he needs to establish pitches early in a game. And those things, for me, have gone under the radar a little bit, but those are really the underlying reasons as to like why you would believe in this guy because he's really shown an ability to get better as the season's gone on and put himself really in a conversation for you know like some, some down-ballot votes with like a Cy Young and certainly in the mix for, for rookie of the year. Fortunately for him, uh, Kobe Carroll with the Arizona Diamondbacks has been tremendous all year and probably and probably deserves it more but definitely in the conversation for it
3: last thing before i let you go um we've talked a lot about the farm since the deadline deals of orlander and scherzer and uh, etc but there's been some good things percolating down in the mets system b mets are in the championship game um you get to see some of the the you know potential stars of tomorrow should we be more excited about the mets farm system than uh, we're talking about i mean look everybody gets caught up in rankings but you know, there's some arms now. There's some positional players. Obviously, nothing's a guarantee. But I don't think this is a barren system. And you know, this is going to be critically important. If the Mets are going to contend, even for a wild card in the next two years, they need some contributions from the system. So should we, as listeners, be more bullish, in your opinion, you're around the team, on this uh, Mets farm system, even uh, without some of those deadline acquisitions that have been talked about the last few weeks?
4: It's better From a depth from a depth perspective, it's a lot better. And I think like in the 2022 trade deadline season, that's kind of, an, that was an issue for them is that like, they had like these, they had a few prospects like, you know, baby Alvarez, um, Mauricio Vientos that they liked, but they didn't want to trade those guys. And there wasn't like another tier of guys that they were willing to trade from either, because like they weren't really that good. And in, in, in the estimation of like rival front offices, So they were in a situation where, like, they had some guys that they liked and they were top guys, but the system was not deep enough to really trade from. And the guys who were in that second-tier group, like I said, just weren't very attractive. So now that's a lot better. And, like, so it's almost flipped a little bit where, like, they don't really have, like, uh, like that Alvarez type that's jumping out of the system, like, and everybody knows him, that kind of thing. Like, Acuna, of course, um, generates those headlines to an extent. And Jet Williams is carving out a name for himself as well, Um, but those are like more, I would say, like what back end type fifty types right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe that changes, Um, but uh, and Alvarez was higher up there than that. So, but yeah, I think that the depth will help. And I guess like when I look at depth, I also look at pitching, and they they've got more interesting arms down there, and that will continue to improve because of the pitching lab where they could now put those guys there and refine some things, uh, tighten up some aspects of somebody's repertoire and boost, boost uh, their skill set. And so that will help. And it helps just from an organizational standpoint where, like I mentioned with trades, a lot of times, you know, teams are looking at if they're going to make an offer, they're looking at, you know, somebody from, uh, you know, high A or double A who's, who, who's shown some tools. And so like maybe the Mets don't have like a, an ace that's jumping out like a number one, or a 1A-type pitcher in their system right now. Um, but they have a bunch of guys who are looking a lot more intriguing than, you know, last year or two years ago, and, and that helps. And with the um, addition of the pitching lab, um, that will certainly help their chances going forward because with the maps, they had to revamp their whole bullpen last year. And part of that was because they didn't really have any internal solutions. Like, Drew Smith was, like, their only guy who they could say to themselves, okay, he's definitely going to be – part of this mix and uh that was about it and if you look at other teams particularly the successful ones they have guys who pop every year and not just one but maybe like two or three guys who just pop uh from an internal standpoint as a reliever who has just all of a sudden emerged as a legit high leverage option the Mets haven't had that and so the more times they could build depth within their system that gives them a better chance for that panning out and that's a big deal, of course, um, when you're looking at successful teams and how to build them.
3: So, Will, what are you going to be looking at the next few weeks covering the Mets? Obviously, last week of the season coming up, Stern's press conference. Uh, you believe Buck is going to be back. What are some of the stories you're, uh, you're focused on over the next couple of weeks heading into Mets offseason? Obviously, I'm not sure if you're going to be covering any postseason baseball outside of the market.
4: Yeah, like we talked about, I think Buck Showalter is the first big question for this team. And then secondly, it, it goes into Pete Alonzo dialogue and conversation and what that's looking like. Also, how David Stearns builds out his front office. Like we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, there will certainly be guys who remain in the Mets front office who have been here, but he will no doubt bring people into key, situa- or key positions. Uh, we saw the Mets make moves uh, with their farm system leader, with their pro-scouting leader, and so those are two key positions right there that jump out to me in addition to player development roles. So uh, I'll keep an eye out for that as well. While in the, toward the end of the regular season, uh, just continuing to monitor what, what we see from their young players because, like you suggested, the, the sample sizes for, like, Juan Mauricio have not been large. But, you know, the more games he plays, the more data points we have to look at. And so that will help. And, yeah, just looking at also like the pitching and, and who could sort of emerge, like we discussed, as, as potentially a, a, a part of the solution going forward as the Mets construct their roster for 2024 and beyond.
3: Well, Will, listen, thanks for being generous with your time on a Sunday. Let's do this again. Appreciate it. Be well, and let's uh, keep in touch. All righty.
4: Yeah, on Mike. Thanks for having me.
3: And that's Will Salmon of The Athletic. You can check him out on X. I keep saying Twitter. I should say X at will salmon all right let's take a quick break wrap up you're listening to the talking podcast we're back with more right after this all right we're back final thoughts I want to thank will salmon for joining us here on the talking Mets podcast and uh you know final week of the season upon us Final homestand, final games, Mets playing out the string, garbage time. The last garbage time Talking Mets podcast will be next Sunday, and we will have a show next Sunday. And then, look, uh, I'm assuming we're going to have a Stearns press conference, and um, and then we're going to be right into the offseason. And will we, will we be taking any time off? It's funny, over the years where I've always said, you know, maybe we'll take a week off in October while the rest of the league is playing in the postseason. You know, last year, obviously, the Mets were in the wild card round. And it never turns out the way because either they're hiring a manager, they're hiring a team president, they're hiring a GM. Like it's like the Mets off season starts like second one after the last pitch, and there's really no uh, continuity. There's no uh, calm waters now. Hopefully, Stearns being hired is the lead to that because you know Epler coming in stabilized it a little bit. But all along, you know, we've known that the Mets have wanted to hire a team president. That hasn't been a secret. And I'll tell you why, you know, I said this at the beginning, and I'll say this on the way out. uh, Stearns has got to get this thing right really quick. I I really sense a burgeoning discontent in the fan base. I think uh, Cohen's honeymoon is over. Uh, I saw the dialogue from the fans who got their bills, season ticket bills. Not only have they gone up, and I, I talked to one fan who, you know, gave me some numbers. He was paying... You know, 18000 a little over $18,000 for three season tickets in 2019, you know, in the Excelsior Gold area. Um, and now that's up to 24950 Over $3,000 increase year over year. The money, from what I understand, is due next month. Now, I know that's season tickets, and that's only one percentage of the audience. And, you know, a lot of people say, hey, Mike, I don't care. I'm going to go on the secondary market, and I'm going to, you know, go purchase tickets and, and what have you. Uh, again, I think the way you fill a ballpark and the way that you you establish that, uh, you know, attendance barometer is through season tickets. As a team, you don't want to have to hold your breath every day at 1 o'clock before a 7.30 game or 7 o'clock game that the rest of the secondary market is going to be scooped up so that you can go out and fill up your ballpark. I think you want to have your ballpark filled. You want to be able to give the fans an idea that, they're getting value for what they're paying for. And I'm not sure I can honestly say, even if you're a championship team, you're at some sort of inflection point here with sports, with the cost of cable, with the cost of taking the car or the train, or wherever you get to the ballpark, um, you know, to get there park, go through the, even the two and a half hour game. Now it's a little bit better because of the pitch clock, you know, the food. I mean, even if you say I'm going to bring my own stuff or not eat, I mean, what are the odds you're not going to spend a dime on a bottle of water? At a ball game. Uh, You need to have uh, some serious disposable income. We all know what's going on in the country with inflation. We all understand how the cost of essential items have gone up. That's just reality. Baseball and going to a baseball game is not an essential item. And I said this when Cohen took over. Everybody was happy. Everybody loves the money spending. They love, you know, talking about Carlos Correa and Brandon Nimmo contracts in January when they're signed. But I said all along that Cohen, as much as he's out there and his wife, Alex, is out there you know, talking to fans, they wrote the apology letter after the pseudo-fire sale at the trade deadline, as much as they have done a lot of good things to bridge the gap between ownership and the fans, this wide gap that existed when the Wilpons were owners, he's still part of an uh, elite group of people with money that a lot of us will never see in our entire lifetime. And he wants to have, and I know this, He wants to have a ballpark experience and clientele similar to Yankee Stadium. He wants that Wall Street crowd. You don't think a Wall Street guy doesn't want that Wall Street crowd. He wants to be a brand. He wants to be the place where everybody goes to. He wants celebrities to be wearing Mets hats, front row, just like they're wearing Yankees hats. He wants to be on the game of the week and have a packed house and be playing big playoff games and having fans plunk down top dollar for tickets, top dollar for hot dogs, top dollar for beer and for whatever else, concessions and jerseys. not going to give that stuff away for free. He's not going to turn it into Kansas City. It's not going to be baseball for a buck. He's needs to charge the kind of prices that come with a fan's expectation of putting a $300 million payroll out there, and that's what it's going to take. You know, that's why I get crazy, you know, when people say, oh, you know, Billy Eppler didn't do anything at the trade deadline. Well, you want him to trade away whatever prospects he does have, you're going to have a $500 million payroll to just round out the roster. Relief pitching is expensive. Starters are expensive. Positional players, a good positional player costs you $20 million a year. Everybody starts with a two in front. Anybody who's good is going to make $20 million a year. Let's face it. Anybody who's good is going to be 18 to $20 million a year inflation has not just hit us at the grocery store, it's hit us at the free agent market. You joke, we laugh, you know, you guys want to throw out a bingo card, the Mike Silva talking about bingo card, that's fine. But it's true. What, you don't think everything goes up and ballplayers don't go up too? It's $4 for a gallon of gas. You don't think it's going to be $25 million for a starting pitcher? Of course it is. And I feel for these guys. I mean, look, $25,000, even if you split it three ways. You know, eight grand. Think about it. Eight grand is a ton of money. You know, that's a uh, you know six, seven hundred dollar a month if you want to spread it out over twelve months. Bill, it's a car payment, an expensive car payment. I mean, look, I get oil here out on Long Island in the winter. Every time I fill up my tank of oil, it's like seven hundred bucks plus. It's like you know, it's like filling up your tank twelve months a year in oil. It's expensive. And I can't, listen, am I going to sit here and criticize Cohen for raising ticket prices after this disastrous season? I can't because I'm the same guy sitting here going, sign Yamamoto, go out and compete, don't punt on 2024, give Alonzo $27 million a year. What do you think this this just, he's, he. you know, they could say, well, he's rich, he, he doesn't need the money. Nobody wants to lose money in perpetuity. I mean, if he is indeed losing $200 million this year, you know, no one's going to cry for him. But do you think the guy over five, six, seven years wants to lose a billion, billion and a half and have bad baseball teams? I mean, that's not what he wants. And some of that's got to be pushed down to the consumer. He's not going to take on the burden of losing money by himself. He's going to push some of that down onto you. So, you know, cry all you want, complain all you want, all the payments due, Uh, you know, the season has just ended, the payments due, that's the way they get you, man. They grab your money. They grab your money. That's sales. Get them in early, get their money, close the deal. You don't close the deal until you get their money. Promises don't pay bills. That just piles up a receivable. So um, I feel for the season ticket holders. I feel for the people who are going to see a price increase. I do predict that you'll see a bunch of people bounce out. They, you know, Season tickets, I think, increasingly are going to become for a certain income level. And I think the, the middle class is going to be pushed out. I, I think a lot of us are going to have to go on this. I, look, I personally go on the secondary market. And I go to a couple of games a year. I didn't even go to a stadium this year, I got to tell you the truth. I watched everything on TV. It just, I, I'm at a point where what I do here for Talking Mets is easier watching the game and being online and gathering information. When I'm at the game, I feel disconnected. I do like going to the ballpark. And normally I go once or twice a year, but after they fell out of the race, I thought about you know catching a game. I usually just catch one, two games, and I just like I wasn't in the mood. I wasn't in the mood to do the parking. You know the the stadium experience is a grind, and I think the future of sports is kind of like pushing itself with gambling and TV. And I've talked about this all the time. People sitting home watching a game on their phones, being able to bounce if the game is losing their interest to something else. You fall behind seven nothing in the sixth inning. You're at the game. You may stick around a couple of days. Hey, I pay for the ticket. You know, let's go check out the Mets Museum. Well, let's go have the kids, you know, whack around the wiffle ball out there in a, by the Shea Bridge. Yeah, all right, you could do that, but you know, you don't want to do it for 81 times a year. It's a big baseball is a big commitment. The amount of games, amount of time each day, the dailiness of it. That's why the NFL is so great. It's once a week. It's perfect for gambling it's basically if you root for one team and you don't watch every game from one o'clock to 11 o'clock at night, every week you watch one team, you're dedicating three or four hours a week. That's really it. Baseball is three or four hours a day. It's a lot. So, you know, I saw the discontent. I saw the anger. Bottom line is you have, you have to realize nothing is free. This is the real rub about life in this world. Whatever you get, whether it be in your private world, from the government, from any any entity that gives you something or that there is something that you do business with is going to cost you. It's either going to cost you up front or on the back end. There's no free lunch. I know you know this. I'm telling But sometimes people forget baseball is a business. And yes, he's an extremely wealthy guy. The wealthiest owner in the sport. But he's not going to spend every dollar out of his pocket in perpetuity. To provide you this product, he's going to ask for it back, and the first way to ask for it back is through the tickets. The next way is concessions and merchandise and things like that. He doesn't own the network, but you know, and that network deal is because the Wilpons owned it and the team. They sold it to themselves for a song and a prayer. But believe me, when that deal is up, if they stay on SNY, it ain't going to cost the same. It's going to be like everything else and be expensive. What do you think your cable bill? I'm paying $340 a month for cable. I wish I could unwind from it. I'm trying to figure out how to. You know, I, I, part of me thinks by dumping it and getting all these streaming services, I'm just paying for the same amount and just more bills. But I guess we'll see. So that's my problem, not yours. So anyway, we'll wrap up on that. Final week of the season upon us. And, um, you know, what will we have coming up? You know, we obviously have the David Stearns press conference. We'll see what he has to say. We'll see if this Alonzo Buck-Schulwalter stuff transpires uh, pretty quickly once the season ends. And and then obviously it's right to the offseason. I'm also looking at maybe a couple of features and segments uh, to round out the season as we get into the, the postseason. Some looking back at some Mets history. I thought it was fun doing the Bartolo Colon look back. Maybe there's some other opportunities. I'm looking into a couple of things. So sit back, relax. I know it's garbage time and it's almost over. We're in the last two minutes of the fourth quarter. We're down by 25. I promise, better days ahead. This uh, this tooth extraction is coming to the end. All right, you can check me out all the time at the thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you can just sign up a podcast, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silvat, at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva talkingmetspodcast.com. You can get me on Instagram, Mets no G. And you can send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media when you wish. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Till then, take care everybody.